Good afternoon and welcome to Everyday Law, the show where we try and help the students, faculty, and parents at Howard Community College have fruitful encounters with the law. It's important that everybody have a basic understanding of day-to-day concepts, and we try and elicit them from our dizzying array of guests. At the outset, I'd like to say that any of the opinions expressed on this show are not the opinions of Howard Community College, and any of the information that the listeners derive from this show is not legal advice intended to be applied to individual situations. If you have a legal situation, it is imperative that you speak to a lawyer and get individualized legal advice. We like to think that we can be helpful on a host of topics, but we are not providing legal advice. Today, the topic is going to be consumer finance, student loans, bankruptcy, and associated matters. And we have the privilege of having one of Maryland's leading experts on the subject, Ronald Schwartz. Welcome to the show, Ron. Nice to talk to you, Bob. So give us a little background on how you got involved in this area of the law. Well, I think probably about 30 years ago, when I was a young lawyer just out of law school, I had some friends that were working for a lawyer in Baltimore that had a huge Chapter 13 bankruptcy practice. And Chapter 13 is one of the two major parts of consumer bankruptcy. There's Chapter 7 and Chapter 13, and they have different purposes and are used for different reasons. But Chapter 13 is generally used for people who, for example, are behind on their mortgage and are trying to stop a foreclosure. That that was really its primary purpose when it was uh, instituted. It's been used for many, it has many other uses. But uh, there was a lawyer in Baltimore who had a huge Chapter 13 practice and he would hire young lawyers to do his cases, and he was getting referrals in the District of Columbia where he did not have a licensed lawyer, and I was licensed in D.C., so he had a large number of referrals of Chapter 13 cases in D.C., and he would refer them to me. And uh, there was a period of time back in the 80s where I had a large percentage of the Chapter 13 practice in the District of Columbia, so that's how I got involved in bankruptcy law. And I've been involved in it ever since. So bankruptcy law is federal law as opposed to sort of Maryland or District of Columbia law, correct? That is correct. It is true that states do have remnants of insolvency laws that date back to the early uh, 19th century. But the Constitution of the United States gives Congress powers to legislate regarding bankruptcy. So it's in the U.S. Constitution. It is a congressional prerogative, and it is a federal law. Now, it does have aspects of federalism, and that is to say that in many instances, state law determines what property you can keep in bankruptcy. It's uh, a federal state program where it allows for states to have a fair amount of say in what kind of property you may you can keep and what kind of property you have to turn over to a trustee if you file bankruptcy. So, uh, but it is a federal law. There are state insolvency proceedings that are sometimes used for corporations, and they're, uh, they've fallen into disuse, but they are still in the books, and uh, they are used from time to time, but not typically for individuals. Okay. So let's talk about the different species of bankruptcies that you alluded to earlier. There's a Chapter 7 and Chapter 13. What is a Chapter 7, first of all? 
So uh, Chapter 7 is, is sort of the basic bankruptcy. And the laws of other chapters in bankruptcy are sort of derived from Chapter 7, which is the basic bankruptcy. And it, if you look up Chapter 7 in, in the Title 11 of the United States Code, which is the bankruptcy section, it's called liquidation. And conceptually what happens in a Chapter 7 is you've, a person or an entity, a corporation, a partnership, files a petition under Chapter 7. They're saying that I can't pay my debts, I'm insolvent, and I need protection from creditors. And what happens when an entity, a person or a business, files a Chapter 7 or any bankruptcy proceeding, immediately upon filing the case, something called the automatic stay goes into effect. And what is an automatic stay? The automatic stay says any creditor that's bringing an action against you, that's suing you, that's trying to collect money from you, that's calling you on the phone, telling you owe the money. They are enjoined by a co- order of a federal court to stop collection actions. They have to stop in their tracks. They can't sue you. If there's a pending lawsuit, that lawsuit is stayed. It stops in its tracks. It's frozen in time. Any wage garnishments that are in effect, if someone is garnishing your wages, that has to stop. There's an immediate freeze as to all collection actions. And then what happens in a Chapter 7, which is a liquidation, is the debtor's property gets liquidated according to the provisions of the U.S. Bankruptcy Code. I presume when you say liquidated, you mean sold. That means sold. And, and as soon as you file bankruptcy, a trustee is appointed, who is a court-appointed official, appointed by the bankruptcy court, and he is vested with your property. And he gets to sell your property to pay your creditors in a fair way. And that is to say that creditors get treated fairly, they get treated evenly. You may say to yourself, well, why would I file bankruptcy if everything is going to be sold? Yes, why would I? Well, the answer is that state law, and in some instances federal law, provides exemptions. And those exemptions allow people to keep a certain part of their property. And so if you have what's called a no-asset case, that is to say that you have property worth less than the amount that you can exempt, you get to keep that property and get out of your debt. So in Maryland, the federal bankruptcy law says that we have a federal exemption statute, and these are the things that we are exempting under federal law, but each state can opt out of that federal exemption scheme and enact its own state law exemption scheme. And most of the states, not all, but a majority have opted out of the federal exemption scheme and enacted their own exemption scheme. Maryland is an opt-out state, and in Maryland, more or less, you can keep about $12,000 worth of stuff and about dollars $24,000 in home equity. So if you have a house that doesn't have a lot of equity, or if you have a car that's not paid for, and the only thing you have is the furniture in your house and your clothes, and, you know, a car that if you took it to CarMax, you might get 2000 bucks for it. You can file Chapter 7. And, you know, if you owe thirty or $40,000 on your credit cards, you can get out of debt. Now, if you have property that's worth more than that limited exemption scheme, then you can file what's called a Chapter 13. And the rule in Chapter 13 is that you have to pay your creditors as much as they would get if you were liquidated under Chapter 7. But... 
consumers that file bankruptcy don't want to lose their property, so instead they enter into a repayment plan. And what you can do is you can pay over five years a monthly payment to a bankruptcy trustee who will take that payment and distribute it to your creditors. And as long as they get as much money as they would have gotten if you'd liquidated, you can keep your property and enter into this repayment plan. And you may wind up paying your creditors 20, 25 cents on the dollar. You won't, you know, you'll still have to make some payments, but you probably won't have to pay them in full. So that's, you know, a reason why people file Chapter 13. Also, if they're behind on their mortgage, let's say their wife got sick and she was out of work for three or four months, or their or their spouse, I don't just say wife, but spouse is sick, you lost family income, you got three months behind on your mortgage, you can file Chapter 13, you can stop a foreclosure sale, and you can pay back over three to five years those payments that you were behind to catch up on your mortgage without losing your house. So there are all kinds of reasons why people file Chapter 13. They may not be eligible to file Chapter 7, or they don't want to lose their property, but they still don't want to have their wages garnished or their property sold. I see. So a Chapter 7 sort of flushes all of your assets down the toilet and pays what little money there is to your creditors, and you get clean hands. Is that right? Correct. And so if you have property that's worth more, then the 23000 in home equity that you can keep and the $12,000 in other property, that property would get sold. Or you might make arrangements. If Let's say you have a little more, you might pay a little bit of money to the Chapter uh, 7 trustee to negotiate a solution. But essentially, right, you, you keep what you can keep and uh, you get out of your debt. So it sounds like you do this in both the District of Columbia and in Maryland. Are there differences in terms of what you can exempt or keep between those two jurisdictions? Oh, absolutely. Well, first of all, D.C. is, is in a certain way a dinner's haven. All of your home equity in the District of Columbia is exempt. So if you have $150,000 know, $100, equity in your house, you can exempt it. Uh, home equity is, is completely exempt in D.C. Only uh, Maryland uses what's the federal exemption, which I believe is uh, $23,750, the last I checked, is the federal exemption. D.C. also allows you to use the federal exemption scheme, which sets up a different exemption scheme than uh, D.C. or Maryland, and you can choose in D.C. whether you want to use the federal exemption scheme or the state exemption scheme. The federal exemption scheme is a little more generous than the state exemption scheme. But in D.C., for example, there are some trade-offs. Like if you have a lot of home equity, you might use the D.C. exemption scheme. If you have a lot of personal property but not a lot of home equity, you might want to use the federal exemption scheme, which is a little more generous. So, you know, you have to look at the individual situation. But in D.C., you can choose the federal or state exemption. In Maryland, you have to use the Maryland exemption scheme. So it sounds like D.C. has greater flexibility. It, It does. So what determines where you file your bankruptcy? Basically where you live. What if you or where own... you own or where you own assets. So for example, you might live in Maryland, but if you have a business in DC, you might be able to file in either place. And what considerations would go into choosing one or the other? Uh, the exemption schemes of each state. That that's the largest reason, you know, you might be able to do better in one it's typically the exemption scheme is usually based on your state of residence. So if you live in Maryland, you're probably, you know, uh, it might not matter because you might have to use the Maryland exemption scheme even if you live in D.C. It's a complicated choice. But usually the law pretty much sets out where you're going to file. 
it's where you've lived uh, or where your assets are located. So, I would presume that these things are not cost-free. No. You have to pay a lawyer, and I guess you probably have to pay the court something, that kind of thing? Right. There's filing fees. The filing fees range in approximately $300. And then there's lawyer fees. Okay. And what's and the... they vary considerably. And depending on the kind of case, the Chapter 13 is more expensive, typically, than the Chapter 7. So it's a more complicated thing for Much the lawyer to undertake. I see. I see. So let's talk a little bit about student loans in the scheme of Chapter 7 and Chapter 13. Let's say I am a student and I decide that I want to go and get a graduate degree and I incur $150,000 in student debt and I get a job and then I get sick and I lose the job. Can I get rid of my loans in bankruptcy? Probably not. Okay. And the, the, the answer is that uh, originally, back in, I guess, the 70s, actually the 80s, guaranteed, government-guaranteed student loans were first uh, made non-dischargeable. Subsequently, the uh, student loan industry lobbied Congress, and they got friendly le- legislators to say that even private student loans are not dischargeable. So there are there sprung up a private student loan industry with higher interest rates. And uh, a lot of these student loans have been abused for trade schools and vocational schools. But those debts are typically not dischargeable in bankruptcy, except under one uh, exception, which is called a hardship discharge. And what is a hardship discharge? And if you discharge? can show that basically you don't have, because of disability or health matters, you don't have the ability to reasonably repay this debt, then you can petition the court for what's called a hardship discharge. They're very difficult to get. Basically, if you become disabled or you can't work, you you may be eligible for a hardship discharge. There's been some recent trends. Some courts have liberalized because there's been such abuse in the student loan industry. There's been some recent trend in bankruptcy courts to make it easier to get a hardship discharge, but it's still a fairly heavy burden for the person to show that they can't repay their debt. I would think that if you're in your 70s and you're still stuck with student loan balances, you might be able to get a hardship discharge at a certain point uh, once you're retired and on a fixed income. You can't work. So, you know, it's, it's a difficult test. Some people get them, but it's pretty rare. So why the distinction between student loans and and all the other debt that one might accrue? Well, originally, originally student loan debt was a government program, national uh, Stafford loans, uh, a whole series of student loans, where the government essentially subsidized the interest rate, made them generally available without really regard to ability. You know, they the, the purpose of student loan was to allow people that couldn't afford college to borrow money at low interest rates and to repay that money uh, after they got out of college and got a job and were working in, in a situation to repay. Sure. Their, the interest rates were subsidized by the government. And so since essentially it was considered a government benefit, they didn't want people to be able to borrow the money, go to college, and then just say, See you later. See you later. You know, you're not going to pay this back. Subsequently, the the loan industry uh, lobbied members of Congress to have these private student loans, many of which were predatory. Predatory meaning high interest rates and bad terms? High interest rates or, you know, involved in sort of uh, vocational schools and schools that really didn't provide degrees, but they had a private financing arrangement with them uh, where people really didn't get what they were bargaining for, but they still 
had these student loans to finance the education because they they couldn't walk into this a vocational school and pay for the money up front, so they would borrow the money. And uh, the private loan industry lobbied Congress to get their student loans included in the exception to discharge. It was uh, essentially uh, a scheme where people with money and lobbying interests were able to get a compliant Congress to go along with what they wanted. It's a in my opinion, tremendously unfair. I am so shocked to hear that the rich have profited from the poor in this instance. (laughs) Welcome to America, Mr. Clark. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. So student loans are generally speaking non-dischargeable. So do you have any advice for students who would hypothetically take out such loans? Well, I, I, I think that for students to take out such loans, I, I would think that I would be very wary of any private student loan. Okay. I think the government student loans have multiple protections. So, for example, if you're out of work for a period of time, you can get what's called a deferment where you don't have to pay. There are many programs that the government has instituted to make them affordable for the people that pay them back. It, you know, there are deferments. There are some income uh, based on your income, they won't ask you to pay back more than a certain percentage of your income. So I would strongly suggest to avoid the private student loan market and just get involved in the government-sponsored you know, student loans sponsored to the Department of Education. I think they have certain protections, at least in repayment built in, that are not available in the private loan sector. Okay. So how often do you see clients who have student loan problems as the primary focus of their indebtedness? Frequently, and I, there's very little I can do for them. And it's very frustrating. Kind of what happens if they don't repay their student loans? They can sue them. They can get a judgment. They can garnish their wages. They can do whatever any creditor does when you don't repay your debt. Yeah, let's talk about that, generally speaking. So if you don't want to declare bankruptcy and you're behind in your mortgage, are there alternative ways to deal with that situation? Well, well, there certainly are. After the housing crisis of 2008 and the crash, basically all, all Fatty Mae and Freddie Mac mortgages are a part of what's government programs for modification of your mortgage. So you may be able to lower your interest rate or spread the payments out over a long period of time or throw the payments that you're behind into sort of a a chunk to be repaid when you go and sell your house, but you don't have to pay it. In the meantime, there are many modification programs. They're difficult to deal with. They involve filling out a lot of paperwork and sending them to your mortgage company. And there are housing assistance agencies that the state uh, lists that can provide you assistance in obtaining these loan modifications. There's a website from the state of Maryland that provides lists of all these housing assistance companies. And in fact, if you're in foreclosure, the mortgage company has to send you information on these housing assistance. And many people have obtained loan modifications that have uh, lessened the impact of, of uh, mortgage problems. So what are the criteria for these modifications? Well, it's based on your income and ability to pay and whether you're working, whether you can make some payment back, whether you, know, whether you can uh, pay a reduced mortgage in the future. It, it's based on essentially an income criteria. So it's an objective formula as opposed yes. to what you think you can afford? Right. It's an objective formula. Okay. Set by the government. So other than student loans and mortgages, what are the other predominant reasons that people come to you to, to talk about bankruptcy? Well, they were living beyond their means and borrowing on their credit cards, and it sort of got away from them. That happens a lot. 
people just didn't have enough money to make ends meet, and they started borrowing money, and they would borrow money to repay the other debt, and all of a sudden they're robbing Peter to pay Paul, and before they knew it, they were behind in their credit card debt. Sometimes people are behind on their taxes. Okay. Is that they something that can be discharged? one k and it was a taxable event, and they you know have a big chunk of money they owe the IRS, or they had a job where they didn't have taxes withheld. They were paid what's called 1099 income. They're an independent contractor. So they worked and they got a check for the work they did, but no, no taxes were withheld. And at the end of the year, they had to pay tax on all this money that was never withheld. That happens to a lot of people. So they have tax problems. They sometimes have medical bills. They had an unfortunate event and they were not insured and they have huge hospital bills. They were in a car accident. They didn't have insurance. There are all kinds of reasons why people uh, come to me for bankruptcy relief. So are tax problems dischargeable in bankruptcy? Yeah, surprisingly, if the taxes are more than three years old and you filed your tax returns on time, the answer is yes. So, for example, right now, we are in June of 2017. The last tax return that was due was April 15, 2017. So if you go back three years from that, that would be April fifteenth, two thousand and fourteen. That would be for uh, tax year two thousand thirteen. So any taxes that you owed from two thousand and thirteen and earlier are dischargeable, so long as you timely filed your tax returns. So what do you do? File your tax returns and then go into hiding? Uh, yes, if you file, even if it's even if it's if it's earlier than 2013, but you didn't file your tax returns. If you wait to, if you file them now and wait two years, you can discharge those debts. So let's say you owed money from 2013 and you didn't file your tax returns. You could file those returns now and then enter into a payment plan with the IRS. So maybe you pay the IRS 150 a month. As long as you're making some effort to repay, you can enter into a repayment plan with the IRS. You could then wait two years and then you could file bankruptcy and discharge that debt. So it's it's three years for the tax year or two years after the return was filed, whichever is later. That's the rule. So, so how forgiving is the IRS about such things? If it's dischargeable, it's dischargeable. Okay. They don't argue about it. They are an agency of the federal government. They clearly have to file fed, follow federal bankruptcy law. Uh, if a debt's dischargeable, then they wipe it off their books. How about if the state of Maryland? They try to collect it. How about the state of Maryland or the District of Columbia or any individual county? So they're all pretty much adherent to the rules. Well, okay, in Maryland, individual counties, other than property tax, don't collect income tax. It's all collected through the state. Okay. And, uh, you know, in Maryland, again, they follow the law. Maryland can be a little bit more persnickety sometimes, but uh, they have to follow the law. So when we were talking earlier, you mentioned the fact that credit cards can often be a significant factor. Are there things one can do short of bankruptcy in dealing with credit card companies? You know, you well, don't you pay. Well, you can and... enter into repayment plans with your credit card company. You can call them up individually. Sometimes they'll take a lump sum payment. It's certainly if you have a, if, let's say you owe 7000 bucks on a credit card, they might take 3500 or $4,000 and write off the rest of the debt. But it's typically better to be able to have some kind of lump sum that you can pay them because they'd rather get some money now than rather than have to collect this thing over five years. 
they will enter into a repayment plan with you. But interest continue, the problem with credit card debt is it's usually at a high interest rate, and interest rate continues to accrue on the debt. So, you know, unless you pay off a significant amount of the debt, you're going to continue to be uh, accruing, you know, 18 or 20 percent interest on this. Now, sometimes they'll make a fixed rate repayment plan. Well, they'll say, okay, pay us seven thousand dollars. You pay it off 250 a month for the next three years, and we'll wipe it off. So sometimes they'll they'll enter into remate payment plan without regard to interest and every creditor is different and it depends on what their policies are i see so in addition to chapter 7 and chapter 13 which i understand they're they're individual or family bankruptcy provisions are there also business ones or are there business ones that are subject to chapter 7 and 13 as well chapter 13 is only for people with a regular source of income it's called a wage earner plan you don't have to be a wage earner. You could have retirement income or or any kind of regular source of income. But you have to be an individual with regular source of income and have debts under a certain amount to be able to file Chapter 13. Any any entity can file Chapter 7, a business, a person. Uh, businesses don't get to exempt property. The exemptions are only available to individuals. So a husband and wife can file a bankruptcy. Married people living together can there was a period of time where there was a question of whether or not people that had a legal gay marriage could file bankruptcy as a husband and wife under Chapter 7. Once the Oberfeld decision was decided, that took care of that. Prior to that, there was an issue. But husband and wives can file bankruptcy, and individuals can file bankruptcy, and businesses can file either a Chapter 11 or a Chapter 7. A Chapter 11 is a very complicated reorganization that wealthy individuals or businesses can file, and it involves getting votes of your creditors to approve a repayment plan. It's something like a Chapter 13, where you repay a certain amount of your debts according to certain priorities. You have to get votes of your creditors to approve a reorganization plan. It's very complicated and would not be, uh, not be applicable to most consumers. So when we hear that, that President Trump had companies that did bankruptcies and that sort of thing. Would they that be chapter some- eleven? Okay, okay. And they restructured their debts. They they found some way to take care of their secured creditors, the people that had mortgages. What what uh, Mr. Trump did was that he did he avoided having to file a personal bankruptcy by making arrangements for his creditors to essentially uh, take over his businesses sell his businesses. He he was able to avoid a personal bankruptcy, but these businesses went into Chapter 11, and he attempted to restructure his business debt. Okay. Okay. So let's put the shoe on the other foot and ask about if you're a creditor. Let's say you lend your brother-in-law $5,000, and you know pretty soon he's got credit card debt, and he's got student loans, and he's got all these things, and he files a consumer bankruptcy. What do you do under those circumstances? Probably SOL. Okay. Uh, you know, if he files a consumer bankruptcy, you're going to be treated like every other creditor. Now, it may be, you know, the brother-in-law is not the best example. Okay. Because the truth is that people's debts, their family members, have a certain morality to them that, you know, it may well be that you didn't get a note from your brother-in-law and he was never really going to sue you. Right. But on the other hand... You know, if you didn't pay your brother-in-law back, it's going to have consequences for your relationship and your wife and everything like this and your family. So there's nothing to prevent any person from paying back their debts after they file bankruptcy. Harry Truman filed bankruptcy and paid his creditors back. 
Well, he, let's say you back. haven't filed bankruptcy yet. He did. And you owe your brother-in-law $5,000. Well, you, if you listed your brother-in-law on, the, on your bankruptcy schedules, which you're required to do under penalty of perjury, then your brother-in-law, the automatic stay applies against your brother-in-law, and he can't sue you for that debt. He's prevented. And if there's a liquidation and there's some money for creditors, then your brother-in-law can file a claim, and he'll get paid whatever cents on the dollar all the other creditors are going to get paid. Now, it may well be that after the bankruptcy is over, you may decide to pay your brother-in-law back to save family peace, and you can do that, but your brother-in-law can't go into court and sue you to collect the money. So there's no different treating family members than anybody else. If you're going to lend money to family members, be willing to lose the money, I gather. Well, and the other thing about it is that if you paid family members back in the last year for money you owed them, it's a little-known fact that there's something called a preference, and a bankruptcy trustee could actually go after your family member and get the money back that you paid him to distribute that money equally to other creditors because there's a provision in bankruptcy law that creditors have to be treated fairly. It's not unusual that when people are in financial straits, they might favor one creditor over another. For example, if you're a business debtor and you have a loan that you've personally guaranteed, you may use your business money to pay back the debt that you've personally guaranteed rather than your other creditors that don't have a personal guarantee. And so if the business winds up in bankruptcy, the trustee could get that money back that was paid as a preference to the uh, personal guarantee holder within a certain period of time, typically 90 days or a year if it was your brother-in-law. So uh, family members actually that got repaid debt might have to uh, come up with the money and distribute it back to a trustee to, so all creditors get treated fairly. Sounds like if you're getting into consumer bankruptcy, you should talk to a lawyer. Absolutely. Well, I'd like to thank you very much, Ron. You gave us a tremendous amount of information, and I hope to speak with you again soon. Thanks very much, Bob. It's been a pleasure. It's Everyday Law. I'm Bob Clark, your host. Have a great afternoon.